listeners, this is a content warning. This episode has violence against humans. So if you're not interested in hearing about that today, feel free to skip it. Dr. Gaspare Galati was a well-known surgeon who lived in Sicily in the late 1800s. In 1872, his brother-in-law died of a heart attack. Galati was left in charge of a lemon and tangerine grove. This should have been good news for Galati financially. Lemons were the fanciest fruit around in 1872. Rich people in Europe and the U.S. like to have citrus oils to flavor their Earl Grey tea. Hundreds of years before Beyonce's sixth studio album, the Sour Yellow Delights were worth their weight in gold. They were also, in a very real way, medicine. Doctors had figured out that citrus prevents scurvy, and there was a rush to get these miracle fruits on the high seas. So Galati's family should have been set up for a life of profit. They had already invested in farm infrastructure. All accounts of this story that I read emphasize Galati's super high-tech steam pump, which could efficiently water the approximately 10 acres of trees. But Galati started having a lot of problems with his estate warden, Benedetto Carollo. I mentioned that Galati's brother-in-law died of a heart attack. I didn't mention that this cardiac event followed, and might have been due to, a series of threatening messages that he had been receiving. These messages were sent anonymously, but everyone pretty much knew they were from Carollo. At first, Galati was a little confused about why he wasn't making much money. He soon learned that Carollo was stealing from him in a way that put his entire business in jeopardy. In this era, lemons were sold before they were ripe to spread out the risk of a bad harvest. So people would bid on certain trees and then they would get all the fruit from that tree for that season. But Galati's customers faced a nasty surprise. Near the end of the season, the lemons and tangerines that they had already paid for disappeared, which meant that nobody wanted to buy from Galati's farm anymore. The warden's intention was to devalue Galati's farm so that Carollo could eventually buy it himself. Honestly, a pretty brilliant diabolical plan. At first, Galati tried an easy solution to this problem. He decided to just lease out his farm. But anytime anyone came to look at the property, Carollo threatened them. Galati finally fired Carollo, which is where the real drama started. A few men who Galati didn't know showed up to warn him that he should hire Carollo back, but Galati refused. Then the new warden he had hired to replace Carollo was shot in the back. When Galati's family went to the police to report what they knew and suspected about Carollo's connection to the murder, the police ignored them. Galati hired another warden, who was also shot. Carollo and two of his friends were arrested, and when the new warden thought he was going to die, he corroborated their guilt. But then the new warden began to regain his strength, and he went back on his statement and made peace with the men, probably for his own safety. Galati was getting the threatening letters, too. He handed them over to the police, but they still didn't take firm action against Carollo, and Galati began to suspect they were all in league together. He stopped leaving the house without a shotgun. After his warden went back on the testimony, Galati and his family escaped to Naples. He wrote a report of what had happened and sent it to the Minister of the Interior in Rome, which is how we know the story today. Gasperi Galati was a victim of the Uditori Mafia. Carollo was working for the mobster Antonino Giomano, who intended to control all of the citrus industry in the area. This is the story of how the biology of lemons, combined with the historic weakness of the Italian state, 
is tied to the rise of the Sicilian Mafia. Sicilian Mafia was developed by three researchers, Alicia Esopi, Archangelo D'Amico, and Ola Olsen. They're economists, and what economists love more than anything else is a good data set. They were therefore delighted when they came across an investigation by the Italian government from 1886 called the Damiani Inquiry. At first, the Damiani Inquiry seems like a pretty boring government survey. An Italian representative for Sicily sent a questionnaire to the lower court judges with questions about agriculture in Sicily in the 1880s, including crops produced, taxes, wages, and working relationships between peasants and landlords. Their survey also inquired about crime, like what the most common forms of misdeeds and their causes were. There was a checkbox where the judges could indicate that the mafia was responsible for a certain crime. This led our modern-day researchers to an important discovery. Academics have speculated on the origins of the Mafia in Sicily since it began, theorizing it was due to class division or poor economic conditions. But those factors were true throughout Sicily. And Alicia Isopi and her team noticed a geographical skew to their data. Here's Isopi, who is currently working as an economics lecturer and researcher at the University of Manchester. What we did find in the data is that there is a, a big region variation within Sicily. So many places, many areas which were considered hotspots in the 19th century are still hotspots now. So in order to explain the regional variation within Sicily, there must be something else, some other factor that could actually be geographically explained within the, the region of Sicily. We found that the cultivation of lemons, um, lemons and oranges, but mainly lemons, was actually that element that was very much different in terms of intensity of cultivation within the area. The economists compared citrus, wheat, olives, and grape cultivation with mafia-related crimes. They found that lemons were most closely associated with the Cosa Nostra. There are a couple ways that lemon cultivation was special in the 1880s. Families like Galati's had to sink a significant amount of capital into the growth of the tree before they saw any return on their investment. They had to clear the fields of rocks and make them into terraces. They had to build walls to protect the plants from the wind and thieves. A steady supply of water is absolutely crucial to citrus cultivation, which is probably why Galati's family bothered to install the steam pump. And after all that, the trees took about eight years to even start producing fruit. There's a lot of room in that equation for vandals and thieves and people who want to threaten citrus growers. As I mentioned earlier, a medical discovery made lemons particularly valuable at the end of the 1800s. Or actually, it's more of a rediscovery. Wikipedia hilariously states in its history of scurvy overview that the knowledge that consuming foods containing vitamin C is a cure for scurvy has been repeatedly forgotten and rediscovered into the early 20th century. Sailors had long passed around oranges and lemons as an antidote to scurvy, and civilizations in the Americas helped their Spanish colonizers by giving them oranges and lemons to cure scurvy, 
presumably before they realized how destructive they would be. But European doctors ignored this anecdotal evidence. Until James Lind. I have never seen scientists praise anyone as much in research articles as they praise James Lind. They call him the protagonist of this medical history. They call him thoughtful. And that is because James Lind took the rumors that lemons and oranges can cure scurvy, and he carried out the first recorded clinical trial in history. Lind was working as a Navy surgeon in 1747 when he decided to do an experiment. He gathered 12 men with scurvy and started giving them the same baseline diet. He then gave 10 men the following potential scurvy cures. Cider, a mix of sulfuric acid and alcohol called elixir of vitriol, vinegar, half a pint of seawater. Just thinking about having to drink a half a pint of seawater a day makes me feel very sick. Or a purgative electuary, which I think means a laxative. He gave the last two lucky men two oranges and one lemon every day. Of course, the guys getting the fruit started feeling better almost immediately. Lynn did not become an instant lemon evangelist. In his subsequent experiments and writing, he didn't make the clear recommendation that citrus was the key to fighting scurvy. People who knew him said this was because he was incredibly shy and unassuming. For whatever reason, the British Navy didn't institute the treatment of lemons for scurvy until the 1790s. But once it did, the practice took off. There were soon almost no lemons to be found. Europe and the United States began to import citrus in huge numbers from the Mediterranean. And Sicily is a great place to grow citrus. Because of its location, it's a pretty easy place to get to and from by boat. Lemons need a very particular climate and are sensitive to frost or extreme heat. Sicily is the perfect place for them. So we have these lemons. There's a clear place to plant them. We have people who desperately wanted these lemons and in fact need them to survive. John Dickey, the historian, academic, and author of the book Cosa Nostra, argues that lemons made 60 times more per hectare than any other crop in Sicily. But there's also this gap between the investment that it takes to grow the lemons and when the investors start to get their money back. And that gap is where organized crime took root. Mafiosos like Antonino Giamona were able to build wealth and power and eventually spread all over the world. Economists like Isopi talk about something called the resource curse. The resource curse is the idea that huge riches in the form of natural resources might not always be a good thing for an economy. If some groups within or outside of a society decide it's more profitable to leech off the groups cultivating the natural resource rather than actually cultivating it themselves. It's just an economic theory, not proven fact, but makes sense in the context of the mafia. I asked Isobi if she ever thinks about the resource curse when she reads the news or thinks about the world today. Once there was a guy from Colombia that when we were presenting this condition, hypothesis, and make reference to the data and things, he raises hands and says, that reminds me so much of Colombia and the narco-traffic which is going on. And for me, it was kind of shocking because I thought, you know, how is it possible that something that happened initially many, many years ago in a very specific and particular situation can actually match or find or be an example of what can happen now, nowadays, in any other context? 
to be honest with you, when I heard that at the beginning, I was like, oh, maybe, I'm not sure. But, that, you know, I was very careful. I was very, you know, I'm not so sure about it. And then I started to think about it even more and more. And now I've decided to dig a little bit more and see, you know, in order to just understand better the situation of the narco-traffic, how it started, uh, what was the situation of the government. But let's put it in that way. Every time there is scope for potential very high revenues, think about like a monopoly situation, and there is no control by the state because the state, the government, is fragile, is not ready to deal with that, to, to put on some regulation of that. You might have a gap for some other institution, which might be legal or illegal, to get in and actually exploit those revenues. Isobi makes the argument that there are some societal needs the government needs to fulfill. For example, in Sicily, the government did not provide a strong police force. So private individuals came up with their own solutions, and they were a real drag for everyone else. I think that the main lesson is that whenever the government is not strong enough to put boundaries, to regulate, and to take care of every kind of monopoly, you potentially leave to private enormous possibility of revenue. And that could be legal or illegal. Because of that extra money from citrus and other resources, Sicily was a very wealthy country. Isopi says maybe the richest country in all of Europe. But all that money stayed in one place, which led to lasting inequality. So it's sort of the main lesson that we should take away from that is that there are things that should never be leave to private or eventually the government can decide delegate to private but keeping a very tight control on that because otherwise you open a gap and the gap sooner or later will be sealed by as i said before by legal or illegal organizations especially at that time in the mid of the 19th century was probably one of the richest regions of the entire europe because of the revenues coming in, those revenues were not left inside Sicily, were not reinvested, but were basically taken by private, which made their own fortune, leaving nothing in terms of redistribution to the population that was actually working on that. So that could be it could have been something that only government could have made. Because if you have a system of taxation in place, you would have taxed the landlord, and that you could have used the revenues to be redistributed to the population. But that didn't happen. Because the revenues was mainly made by private. Private taxing revenues from themselves. And because there was no strong state, that meant that the inequality that you find now in Sicily has very deep roots. If you follow the latest theory, on growth and inequality. The main, you know, the eye, uh, the key role apparently is played by institution, and I totally agree with that. Um, without an institution which is strong, that would increase the gap in growth and inequality, which is very much the picture of what we see nowadays. 
That is a lot we can learn about both past and present governments from some 1872 lemon drama. Now for a long tangent. When I was researching this story, I wanted to learn as much about lemon cultivation as possible, which is how I ended up at the home of Dr. Isabel Wade, an environmental planner and the president of a nonprofit called Urban Resource Systems. She runs the One Tree Project, which is basically the opposite of the mafia. It's a sustainability campaign. Wade believes that cities can contribute significantly to providing for themselves, and she wants people who live in the Bay Area to produce the same amount of lemons as they consume. Well, I started a nonprofit in 1981 called Urban Resource Systems, and the goal was to try to promote more comprehensive view of cities as resource producers. And we were especially interested in urban agriculture and urban forestry. Well, back then, nobody was too interested in, especially in urban agriculture. And so I focused on forestry. But when I retired 10 years ago, I wanted to loop back to the urban agriculture. And I thought I'd like to have a simple project that I could work on more or less by myself and I wanted to have something to do with food. And so cities, there's not much space, San Francisco being a prime example. And I thought, well, the natural thing for cities needs to be to go in the direction of fruit trees and nuts in some places. That's not appropriate here, but fruit trees. So I researched a bit, and a friend of mine had done a project to look at crops in the Bay Area and what was produced locally and what what was absent or very little and needed more production locally. And citrus is one of the ones that was needed. And so I thought, well, that's a good one to pick for a project where we're also trying to involve every neighborhood and all communities. Every culture has lemons and loves lemons. And there's lots of lemon stories, as we found doing our project. In San Francisco, even though we have a lot of different microclimates, the Meyer lemon turns out to grow just about everywhere. Anywhere, it doesn't like much wind, but otherwise, it doesn't need a full eight hours a day of sunshine or anything like that. So it's very achievable and appealing because some people said, well, why lemons? And other than the reasons I just mentioned, I mean, we're deficient in potatoes, too, but that's not a very sexy campaign. <laughs> so I just, we've stuck with lemons. I asked Wade what it's like to grow lemons in San Francisco in 2019. Does it take eight years in a steam pump to see any results like it did in Italy in the 1800s? No, but they are vulnerable to wind and, disgustingly, rodents. And they're pretty easy to grow, but there are a few things to work around. One is they definitely don't like wind. So that's important where you locate them. So if, you, if all you have is a windy balcony, you need to put up a screen of some sort to try to block the wind. They don't take too much sun issue. They like lots of fertilizer, but if you put something faithfully every quarter, that's good. The big issue we found in cities, and maybe San Francisco, but I think any city is certain varmints like lemons and I get questions all the time rats been attacking my lemon tree and it's hard to believe because especially 
they eat the rind and they'll chomp all around the rind and then leave the fruit because it is, you know, not what they really want, but they somehow like the rind. So we've had to come up with possible solutions that people can try, such as putting chicken wire around the trunk. If you have access to mylar, you can also put that around the trunk and even the branches cut up because that you know, is slippery and then their little paws, they can't really get up in the tree. If your lemon tree is by a fence and they can jump from some other location, they're going to jump. So you just have to keep fertilizing and having a lot of lemons produced so that if they get some of them, you still have production. There are solutions and it is a city. <laughs> so yes, you get varmints with city. There's one particular challenge about modern day lemon cultivation, a terrible disease called citrus greening. I could make a five episode series about citrus greening, but the gist of it is that it's this incurable bacterial infection that's spread by a bug. It's devastated the citrus industry in Florida, where farmers are currently distributing medical grade antibiotics to try and stop it. For the first time, California started producing more oranges and lemons than Florida. But now the disease is in California too, and some parts of the state are under quarantine. In January, authorities found one of the disease-carrying insects in the Marina District, and the whole city of San Francisco was put under quarantine, according to the San Francisco Chronicle, which adds extra urgency to Wade's work. So HLB is a serious disease. It's, it's carried by a bug, but it's not the bug that actually has the disease, but it infects the plant and then the plant basically is gonna die if it gets that. I know they've been trying to work on a solution because you know we have all this commercial production down in Southern California. Uh, and then like I said, Florida was very, very severely damaged. So I'm hoping that a solution is coming along, but it does make people think, oh, you know, am I part of the problem and something like that. So we have to encourage people that even the you know ag extension said no home uh, growers are not the problem the main thing is you cannot transmit any part of a lemon in a quarantine area and now the whole city is in a quarantine area so that means you really even when you take your lemons to your friend's home in berkeley you should wash them off before you do that with a little clorox in the water and then you cannot transmit any part like don't cut a branch and oh it's pretty in the green leaves and take that over to Marin or anywhere else. You just simply cannot transport any part of a lemon tree and you should wash off the fruit that you're going to take anywhere. Wade wants us to consider cities as producers. After all, it takes a ton of energy and fossil fuels to move food from one place to another. If we can, if a food we love will thrive on our porches, it would be great if we could grow it ourselves. The whole idea is to get people thinking about what can we produce in our cities and also to be aware that we should be producing in our cities. And we're the second most dense city in America and we still can be sustainable in numerous crops. Like one thing is greens. You know, if we all just put it in a window box or, you know, whatever little space we have, we can grow a lot of greens in the city. And 
the citrus. I mean, there's a number of things that we could become more sustainable in. And a big part of our climate challenge relates to transportation. And that's flying in food from, or trucking it in from wherever, but, you know, usually about 2,000 miles away. So the more we can produce at home in, a, in our backyards or in a community garden, we have quite a few community gardens in San Francisco, the more really important impact we're having on climate change. So we just want people to think about sustainability. And yes, it is possible in chunks in our even our very dense city. As Wade mentioned, there's lemon legends in nearly every culture. Whether you are lucky enough to be able to grow fruit at your home or if you're picking some up for less than a dollar at the grocery store, I hope you appreciate those suckers. You probably won't have to take any bullets for them or rely on them to keep your gums from hemorrhaging because of scurvy, but people have in the past. And these days, because of citrus greening disease, the relationship between our species is more uncertain than ever. Thank you to John Agnew, Nikki Duong, and Elena Lacey for being my first listeners and providing invaluable feedback. Thanks to Nikki also for the plant crimes art. You can find us, and by us I mean me, on social media or reach me via email at plantcrimes at gmail.com. If you like the show, please leave us a review. It helps a lot, and I mostly like reading them. And thanks to the kind people who have left reviews already. Thanks for listening!